audio check. This episode was super interesting. I got to talk to a pharmacist primarily working in phase one clinical trials. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I have on the phone here with me, Dr. Marcus Stavchansky. Marcus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to uh, chop it up with you here. We actually met on Twitter, which is pretty amazing, and we've talked a lot on there, and um, you've, you've provided a lot of insight, actually, uh, through the through the Twitter realm. So I'm happy to finally connect with you, quote unquote, in person here on the phone. Yeah, it definitely is an amazing world at Twitter. There's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting discussions, but uh, I actually think the deepest conversation I had with you was on Reddit uh, on the topic of uh, actually I don't remember if it was the lifestyle of a pharmacist or kind of the you had this question that you wanted everyone to get involved with, and it really sparked my interest because it was a very interesting question. And now I forgot what the question was. I'm, wor- I'm wondering if it was the time that I went on there about the negativity and just talking about how negative the Reddit thread was and i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna get into a a keyboard battle with all of you people that you know don't <laughs> like pharmacy and you know are not are not positive and optimistic about it so let's and i spent i think it, it was like days i was like on the like talking to people on reddit man it was it took up so much of my time it was ridiculous yep i that is it it was definitely about the negativity and, and i think that uh one thing i appreciate about what you've done on social media is really really speak positively, even about current events or definitely the profession uh, itself. It's, uh, it's, it is hard to find positivity in our profession, and it makes me smile when I find those pharmacists that are, are still engaged and still uh, passionate about the profession. Yeah, positivity is important, and positivity always wins in the end. So I'm going to keep trying to shed that light. But all right, let's, let's hop off this uh, our, our positivity soapbox here, <laughs> and uh, and let's 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 dive into a little bit what we talk about. Um, if you can first just start off, give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and um, kind of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so I am uh, born and raised a Texan. We are anti-Florida, if that matters to you. <laughs> Uh, anyways, uh, I actually make fun of Floridians on a consistent basis. Every news article I read is about Florida for some reason. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, as a Texan, you grow up a longhorn when you're from Austin and that's where I was born and raised. I actually went to the university of Texas college of pharmacy when uh, we were ranked number two at the time back in the day. Uh, and I, uh, started in pharmacy school working in community pharmacy at a grocery store, but I did a lot of hopping around independence working in compounding. Uh, And I also did a lot of experience in uh, a little bit of research during my graduate school days after pharmacy school, focusing on health economics and really a lot of time in uh, post-marketing database surveillance type of work. Uh, What happened after that in Austin, everybody joined a startup. And so I did my share. I actually did a startup where I worked in EMRs, where I was developing the pharmacy interface for physicians to do CPOE on an outpatient side. So we were existing in my company uh, before Epic and before uh, Cerner uh, got into the outpatient space. They were definitely the dominant players in the inpatient space. But on the outpatient side, physicians just were not adopting because they had no incentive to. There was really no drive. Uh, still isn't, actually. <laughs> physicians are the only people that do not benefit from CPOE, while everyone else does. It's kind of on a kind of funny how that works. 
Um, and then the next stop was Web 2.0. So I was a part of the Axirum movement. Uh, Marixa, I guess, was kind of the anagram to Axirum when we started the uh, RxWiki uh, page. And I was uh, the evangelical pharmacist, the second ever uh, for that group. And we actually recruited pharmacists to contribute uh, to wiki pages uh, regarding compounded medication and just various other top 200 drugs, if you will. It was only allowed to be edited by pharmacists, and I was the one who helped to recruit during my time there. And I also helped to edit the content after the pharmacists would post very interesting time in my career. This whole time during that, that span, I was still working in the community. And I still am employed today in a community pharmacy where I've worked now for 24 years as a uh, relief pharmacist. And uh, it's an amazing company that I work for. It's a grocery chain down here in Texas called HEB Pharmacy or HEB. And it's uh, it's very close to Publix in the Southeast and how they're related, but it's actually a lot more successful than Publix, if you can imagine. And it's only in one state. So it's a pretty impressive organization with regards to revenue and, and company. But ultimately, when the second Web 2.0 job ended, I really was uh, changing my family life. I had gotten married. I was uh, had the first child on the way. And I said, you know what? I need to go something more stable. And so I decided to pick the clinical research organization business. Uh, I found an opportunity literally online and applied for a pharmacist role, a research pharmacist role. And ultimately, the uniqueness about the position in Austin at the time was that it was for phase one. So really focused on clinical safety, not really focusing on efficacy at all. And phase one is a different beast entirely from what most pharmacists are exposed to in pharmacy school or in the residencies and rotations in regards to what happens in the clinical research side of things. And then as we've progressed through the same organization that I've been with since I started, I moved from Austin to Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm located now. Uh, and as I started as an individual contributor, if you will, uh, in the pharmacy space, I'm now the global head for pharmacy services for the entire clinical pharmacology group. I have four units, one in the UK, three in the US, and now I'm in charge of all aspects of pharmacy management uh, within the research space for phase one units. And the uniqueness about our business is that we actually do manufacturing now. So I am a GMP trained pharmacist, uh, taking it to the next level above compounding, and we do sterile and non-sterile manufacturing for capsules and sterile IVs. Uh, well, I'm actually punching tablets now, and I'm I'm uh, blending powders all at a GMP level, and it's been an exciting run, and uh, that's where I am today. Yeah, so there's so much to unpack there, and uh, the beauty of this all is uh, one of the reasons I really was excited to have you on is because of the unconventional nature um, of your career path, and um, so I, I feel like we have a, a, a few different things to talk about, um, but I guess to to start off, I'd like to maybe pick your brain a little bit about, uh, we'll start off with your current day role and kind of what your day-to-day looks like. And then we'll maybe backtrack into a little bit of your previous experiences to get to get some insight there. But tell us what your current day-to-day is like now in your current role. So currently I'm responsible for the team in Dallas. It's a team of uh, about three pharmacists and three technicians and then two nurses. So the nurses are what we call medication coordinators. They're responsible for the dose administration of all the material that we actually manufacture. Uh, on site or prepare on site. We don't manufacture everything, but we were about 50% now, 50% manufacture, 50% kind of assembly or dis- dispensing of product. Uh, and it's all investigational. So there is absolutely zero uh, marketed product that we're using. Everything we do is uh, cutting edge and uh, bleeding edge because that, we don't work with generic companies. We work with innovator companies exclusively. Um, 
every day I walk in, uh, it's really about assessing kind of opportunities, if you will, from a commercial perspective. I'm looking for ways for us to do work and solve problems for sponsors. And uh, sponsors can be the top 10 pharma companies that you know of, and then definitely a uh, bunch of startups in Boston and San Diego, California, as well as in Northern California and San Francisco Bay Area, where we're constantly looking for ways to get them into the clinic from the preclinical space. So basically a molecule is developed. They've got some animal work in vivo and they're trying to determine, can we take this product uh, into humans? So the models for animal studies are extremely robust now. They're pretty predictive of what happens in humans. And so the, the key thing in our facility is we're actually dosing humans for the very first time for these new molecular entities or, or at this point it's an investigational new drug. So it's really exciting to be part of the bleeding edge. It's something I've done my entire career. As you can see, I was in startups my whole life. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, being uh, experimental, if you will. And ultimately, uh, it allowed me to be very entrepreneurial, too, even in my corporate environment. Yeah. Uh, but that's where every day is basically assessing opportunities, managing the teams, making sure we're prepared to do the actual um, preparations themselves. And we're building basically batch records and trying to assess our facility to make sure we're maintaining all the controls that we need in a GMP environment. And GMP, for those that don't know, is good manufacturing practice. Uh, it's basically what every big pharma has to do in order to manufacture drug product in the U.S. Uh, and internationally, actually. So it's an international standard. So, can, um, And that, that's it. Yeah, go ahead. Can you give us a little bit of insight as to where your particular company and or specific department comes into play? Because you had mentioned that you are serving, you know, your sponsor's needs and just making sure that things can get executed properly. But can you give us a little bit of an overview as to like what what sponsors are you talking about, number one? And then two, like sure. where where exactly do you guys fit and then what might be the next steps after that? So clinical research organizations are hired by Big Pharma. So we're talking the Pfizer's, Lilies, Merck's of the world, as well as by the smallest biotechs, which are one-person virtual companies out on the West Coast or in the Boston area. And ultimately what's going on is, is we are hired to execute or conduct clinical trials. So you would think that early on in development, clinical development, sponsors want to do this in-house because they want tighter control over their own processes. What's funny is the sponsors, especially the large ones, are really slow when they keep things in-house. And when they outsource to us, things speed up dramatically and we don't sacrifice quality along the way. So you can imagine that sponsors come to clinical research organizations, otherwise known as CROs, to help execute their clinical trials. So our role in the pharmacy space is to manage all the drug products, investigational drug products that these sponsors have available. Sometimes we're just taking their provided capsules, tablets, and dispensing them out like we would in a traditional pharmacy environment. Other times I'm getting raw material, powder, API, drug substance, excipients, and we're actually formulating with the sponsor in order to prepare their sterile IV infusion, subcutaneous injection, you can name it. We do pretty much everything. And the uniqueness about what we do is, again, we're focused on safety. So the goal, the goal of these trials is to determine the pharmacokinetic profile, the PK, and then we're also trying to determine are there any dynamic effects that would uh, affect the safety profile of the actual drug itself. So we're looking for elevated blood pressure. We're, we may be looking for unwanted side effects, headaches and nausea, vomiting, your standard stuff that you see on every package insert. But what you don't typically know is what other things are being evaluated this early on, and that's what we have to do in those first human trials is to help our sponsors recruit the studies, execute the trial, and then provide the data at the end with all the analysis that we do on, on the samples that we collect. Now, being in that particular part of the process, it sounds like you 
potentially have to you're involved in delivering a lot of bad news in terms of maybe failure or um, or or is that not part of what you guys do? You just perform uh, the studies or, or perform like administration of these drugs and making sure they're either um, formulated properly and delivered properly. Are you also looking at the results of of what is going on with those particular um, effectiveness? Yeah. So the, the again, effectiveness is not typically part of our space, but ultimately the pharmacies, pharmacists, let's say, are not focused on the results. That's what the principal investigators are doing at our site. Um, there is bad news in our space, and it's it's usually a, unfortunate when you have to kill a drug in phase one because, uh, well, it's good and bad. It's good because you're going to save a lot of money and not kill it in, drug in phase two. Uh, but ultimately, you're able to um, determine if the drug is maybe being used at the incorrect dose or being leveraged in a formula that just isn't effective at getting the bioavailability that you're looking for. So ultimately, uh, our organization, our CRO, does not invest in the, in the uh, products that are coming through our pipe. We are basically just executing the trials as a contractor for these particular uh, sponsors. And, and the FDA uh, and all the organizations, health organizations internationally, understand the need for CROs because we're uh, able to uh, provide alternatives for um, the sponsors from using everything in-house, which has been proven time and time again as a very inefficient process. And I'm sure it also helps with conflict of interest, right? Um, because if you're doing things in-house, it sounds like that's a potential for things to be more likely to get pushed through when maybe they should actually be ended at, in the phase one. 100%. And uh, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's a big driving factor uh, for sure. But, you know, researchers are ethical. Um, we've had experiences where the business side of big pharma definitely is not ethical. That's a totally different argument. Well, when it comes to R&D, it's really interesting. I think when you when you interact with the scientists, uh, the formulation scientists and the clinic, the clinicians, the physicians and the, the staff that are working for the sponsors, they don't their head is in a different place, especially in early clinical development. You're really trying to determine, does this molecule even have a chance? You're not in late stage trying to determine what's the market access for this particular drug or you're trying to determine what's the way we can get this approval done in our particular space. That, that being said, my organization absolutely does participate in those trials. And it's definitely a lot more challenging, a lot more costly. Uh, just a good way, a, a rule of thumb is a study in my space is typically about a million, a million and a half to run. A study in phase two, when you start entering into patients, now you're talking about 10 million, 12 million. And then when you get into the late stage studies, you're, you're definitely talking about 300 million, 200 million dollars to run these studies uh, internationally. And of course, uh, just nationally in the state, in the states when you have to get approval for the U.S., in order to get the drug on the market. So, you know, our, our studies are more frequent. We have a lot of them. They're a lot shorter than your typical clinical trials that you would see in patients. And uh, it's definitely just trying to answer the question, what's the PK profile and is the drug safe for humans? And I know that you may have covered this um, previously, but I just want to maybe double check and make sure we didn't miss anything. But was it actually like, I see that, you know, part of your titling is a pharmacy manager on, on clinical trial, on local clinical trials. What um, are there other things that that comes with or any other insight you can give us on that particular role? So the main function is definitely preparing the drug product. There's a lot of aspects under good clinical practice that you have to follow, like drug accountability, who gets what. There's a lot of blinding procedures to make sure the drug stays blinded throughout the entire process. And that's the responsibility of the pharmacist and the pharmacy team that dispenses the drug from the space. Occasionally, we have drug-drug uh, interaction studies where perhaps the subjects are on a birth control and a lot of times we are being asked to get them on the same birth control and start them on the trials 
start them on the study two months prior to them actually even getting the investigational product. So there we can have some counseling opportunities, talk about uh, your typical strategy around managing uh, birth control, side effects, all the things that you typically counsel on when you're when you're speaking to someone about clots and smoking risk, all the other things associated with it. A lot of these things are, if you're smoking, you can't even uh, be part of a clinical trial anyways. But the reality of things is, is it's an opportunity for pharmacists to counsel. And I actually enjoy that. I think it's one of the best things that we get to do, whether it's just uh, birth control or some other drug-drug interaction uh, study that we have to um, counsel on. But that's the extent of it. You know, we have minimal uh, subject interaction. The focus is with the client uh, with regards to the sponsor and being able to interact and solve their problems. And of course, interaction with the teams locally at the site, the people that do interact with the sponsors on a re- or with the subjects on a regular basis and being able to to handle, um, you know, any kind of challenges that we're faced with, especially around dose administration. So at times you have to you're. I don't want to say infiltrating is the right word, but you're essentially going to clinics or pharmacies and saying, hey, we were hired to be a part of the study, um, so we have to do X, Y, Z to get this going. Because at first I kind of picture, oh, maybe they have their own pharmacy where they're just like recruiting people and making things happen. But it sounds like you actually go to uh, specific established either pharmacies or clinics and then execute the trials there. No, actually, it's the former. We have a 100-bed facility in Dallas. I've got 65 beds in Daytona. I've got... uh, 48 beds in Madison, Wisconsin, and then we have about 72 beds in Leeds, UK. So each of the facilities that have beds where subjects do sleep overnight, they each have their own pharmacy. So we have pharmacies that are there. But what you just described is something we're offering now where I go and qualify sites that want to maybe do some simple dilutions or some more complex type of preparation for drug, and I qualify them for our sponsors. Absolutely. Um, We do go to sites and help them qualify them to make sure they're meeting our needs. And before this was done by non-healthcare professionals, they would just, here's the manual, try to follow the directions. No, no, uh, no focus on technique. There is no like, uh, do they even have the right space to do this type of work? And we've really broken ground in that for our sponsors because they really like the fact that we have the pharmacist expertise uh, at these uh, clinics that are performing the drug preparations. And, And the drug preps are starting to get more and more complex because they're not Sponsors are not investing in optimized formulas in early clinical trials and early phase two and phase one studies. Uh, they're just not doing it. So it, it makes me it means that there has to be potentially some extra work done at the clinic. And that's why we're qualifying them. So another answer to your question, it's both. But definitely the, the former where we have the clinics with pharmacies in them, that's the priority. Eighty five percent of my time is spent uh, at the clinics, making sure we're, we're following procedure protocol and, and making sure things get uh make sure drugs come out as they're supposed to that is really interesting actually um and with those protocols i mean would you say that some of them are, are almost designed by scratch like that's part of your role or would you say that you know companies already have like an established way of executing some of these protocols um where's the balance there in terms of i guess maybe some examples of what those are like yeah, so it's a great question. So each CRO and each pharma company has a medical writing group. And the medical writing group typically is the one that has a template protocol, but obviously there's very much details that are specific to their particular molecule, their particular drug product that they're investigating. Covance offers those services. We have a template. It's much easier for us to follow that template because we use them all the time. I would say 70% of the time we use internal Covance templates. But ultimately, as you spread uh, as you spread to some sponsors, they prefer to keep it all in-house and do their own. And then we review it with them 
and try to get to it before they have an approval in their internal processes so we can make some edits. We definitely know what's best to execute. We know what's best to be able to um, you know, make sure that the clinic trial is going to run smoothly, whether it's inclusion, exclusion criteria, whether it's around procedures being done on the clinic floor. And of course, the drug piece is actually uh, kind of interesting because in the protocols, there's very minimal information specific to drug preparation because you don't want to, to slow down revisions of process based on drug prep. So we actually have a manual that we create, whether it's in-house or the sponsor creates it and we, we modify it. Uh, that talks specifically to the drug portion. So we really are pulled out and paid very close attention to in order to be able to prepare the drug the right way. Wow, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty interesting. Now, do you have any examples of uh, maybe something that's public uh, where you can share that was like maybe a very interesting trial or a crazy trial that you're like, oh, I can't believe we're actually doing a trial on this drug or something like that. Like, do you have any stories <laughs> there? So I really can't obviously disclose any of that, but uh, for the most part, phase one studies don't get published. That's kind of something that phase two, what they call a proof of concept study is really where the first publications occur. No one really focuses on what happens in healthy, normal subjects. All they care about is what happened in, in patients, right? And that's kind of where the, the publications really start. So that's that proof of concept study that what they call a phase two A type of study. Sometimes people call it a phase 1B. This depends on who you talk to. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, the the craziness for me, I'll be honest with you, what's what's crazy for me is doing an eye drop in a human for the first time. That flip that freaks me out every single time, man. <laughs> so like <laughs> you know, we if you don't know this, the the preferred animal model for eyes, eye drops is rabbit eyes, if you can imagine. Huh. And uh the rabbit eye structure, the organ is actually almost identical to how a human eye behaves. And so the predictive models of rabbit eyes to, to see how the drug responds uh, to them is, is a predictor for how it would behave in human eyes, mainly around eye pressure, uh, any kind of tension they can measure. But you can't tell if the rabbit goes blind. At least I don't think you can. I don't know how they established that. Yeah. But when I when I did my first eye drop, first in human ever, I was freaking out. I had to be in the room because I wanted to see what that human uh, subject was going to do when they knew that they were the first ones to ever get it. And it was amazing because obviously a hefty stipend will help someone do anything, I guess. And they were they were able to tolerate uh, they were able to tolerate the drops uh, one in each eye. I still remember that day like it was yesterday. It must have been like eight years ago, and I'll never forget it because uh, it really had an impact on my vision of what phase one was all about, uh, which is truly establishing if a drug is safe to give to somebody. And these guys that are donating their their time uh, and and their schedule to us uh, is is impressive what they do. Uh, but it's definitely interesting. Some subjects are more interesting than others, if you will, and and some won't take the chance, and some will. That's um, I, yeah. That sounds ahead. like it's a it's like a reality show in itself, almost like <laughs> just to like. Well, I can tell you, there's plenty of uh, there's definitely plenty of content to create a reality show on yeah. the the lab rats, uh, the human lab rats, if you will. I, I immediately go to the. Uh, to the scene. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but uh, I like Jim Carrey movies. The fun with Dick and Jane where yeah. Jane had to like go and try on like some makeup or something. Cause she needed like a hundred bucks or like, I forgot. It was like some like real low amount of money and like her yeah. face blew up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like when I was in pharmacy school, my professors that kept talking about the black toe thing where uh, every drug has some weird side effect, but you never know if it's the drug or not. And that's really the challenge. You have these normal expected side effects like headache and nausea and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden you have an allergic response, which, you know, isn't very common outside the antibiotic realm typically. Uh, but you get it once in a while. And, you know, after doing this for 11, 12 years now, 
I, I, you know, I've, we've had hospitalizations for sure based on side effects, but, uh, it's just rare. It's extremely rare because the animal models are such a good predictor of what's going to happen in the human, whether it's the beagle or, or the, you know, the, the different animal models that we use for liver and for, um, uh, metabolism, excretion, distribution, things like that. And it's amazing how those models are really strong predictors of safety. Um, but, you know, we still have to do the human testing. It's still a requirement in order to be able to get a drug on the market. You have to establish it in healthy normals to see if they can tolerate it. The only exception is typically in oncology, where oncology, you don't start chemo in healthy people. That would be foolish. So you, mm-hmm. you basically have these phase zero studies or phase two studies that are very early on in, in oncology patients when you're trying different treatments. So to, in our facility, we don't really do any oncology studies that are directly related to uh, a neoplastic. We really focus on things that are maybe supportive palliative care or things that aren't really uh, in its natural nature, a, a chemotherapy uh, for oncology type of studies. But it's pretty scary stuff. But that, that business, that that whole realm of oncology trials, that's by far the largest, but it's extremely, um, it's, you know, it's obviously very risky for the patients, but a lot of these patients are, are, have no, no options, right? This is the best option for them is the new cocktails or the new, um, new treatments that are coming out, but monoclonal antibodies have, have just changed the face of oncology forever. No yeah. doubt about it. Now I really enjoyed the nugget about the rabbit eye, you know, being like the best predictive model for eye drops. Is there any, not not to really put you on the spot here, but any other nuggets like that you got that's really interesting? That yeah. So, so it's funny. The, the absorption models are all based on beagles. And so basically you're looking at metabolism uh, and absorption through how the beagle models go. And of course rats play a role in that too. Uh, but the beagle is, uh, is best known for metabolism to be identical to a human. Interesting. Uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, and then, you know, obviously the, when you have to go to, um, to, um, primates, you know, that's obviously as close as you can get to a human, uh, without being a human. And so they pretty much mimic everything that we do. Uh, and then, uh, on top of that, I think you have fetal pig or not fetal pigs, but just pigs in general. And, uh, and ultimately they represent a better, uh, model for, uh, uh, when it comes to excretion uh, as part of the process. So the goal really is to really understand how the drug behaves in certain pHs, but definitely in an in vivo type of environment. So you try not to do, you know, you want to minimize obviously the amount of exposure to animals as you possibly can. Unfortunately, just the way the research is, um, you have to do them. Otherwise you're putting humans at risk. So that's really the the balance, right? Do you go with humans or do you go with, uh, with animals? And when you do things humanely, when you do things appropriately, everything works out for the benefit of science and hopefully for the benefit of, of humans uh, with regards to getting better health, you know, from a health perspective using pharmaceuticals. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting topic that I'm sure people go on, you know, scholars go on hours about. But I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if, if we didn't do the certain things that we do, modern medicine wouldn't be a thing. Neither would like, you know, uh, longer um life expectancies that we see now. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just almost part of the game there. But what about uh, dermatology medications? Yeah. Like, is there a specific medium that's like ideal for that in terms of mimicking or getting the best model, being the best model? So when I was in graduate school, we actually used pig skin uh, as the kind of the model, not not when they're alive, but, you know, the skin of an animal that uh, mimicked the human was basically pig skin, but I never did it on live animals Gotcha. Uh, okay. with regards to dermatology. Most of the time uh, it's just your traditional models when you're looking at absorption, uh, which would really ma- mainly be tied to, I would think the pig because there's not a lot of hair intrusion like a, a like a, a dog would have, for instance, a beagle dog. Um, but uh, the, the models I think uh, that you have seen maybe on, 
on YouTube or television or whatever mm -hmm. uh, with regards to cosmetics and stuff like that. That that's not that may have happened a long time ago, but it definitely doesn't happen now. Yeah. Um, the strategy now is to just try to find a model in vivo that mimics exactly what happens with a human. Um, but a lot of times dermatology drugs, unless they're, um, you know, antivirals or any kind of, uh, anti-infective, if you will, they typically, um, the modeling that they use now in rats is pretty much the extent, I think, of what we see mostly. But every, every drug that goes into humans has to have two animals. That's just kind of a law, uh, with regards to how the FDA works. So, you got to have two models somewhere and they have to help predict uh, safety uh, profiles because what you're doing with the animal models is determining what the tolerated maximum tolerated dose could be. And then you're basically uh, determining this value that is the not otherwise uh, uh, effective at uh, side effect or at producing side effects. And so ultimately this value is, is, is the starting point for a human study and it's all based on animal models and how much they've been dosed. Yeah. So it's kind of an important, it's an important formula, important calculation. So going from, you know, creating content uh, with the RX Wiki page from, you know, community pharmacist to RX Wiki to the startup, like how, how did you get interested in going into this field specifically? Like explain to me what that transition was like. Well, so my first entry into startup was when I was in graduate school, someone came up and said, hey, we need a database that a pharmacist can manage and build. And I was like, ah, I like technology. I'm going to go ahead and try that. And that was the EMR startup, right? So I actually did that first. And when that, uh, I was there for eight years while in graduate school, by the way. So it was kind of interesting how that worked out. And and then ultimately, uh, the Web 2.0 opportunity happened after I left that first company because they wanted me to relocate to Virginia. They wanted to be closer to policymakers when it came to EMRs. And I just really wasn't ready to move to another state. And so then I started the RX Wiki page, uh, and, and I was number two. So there was a there was definitely another guy who had started it from a pharmacist perspective, but they had bunches of technology folks uh, that were building the the models, the advertising, how they rendered content uh, electronically, and you know they did a good job. I mean, uh, Marixa uh, did a good job, I thought, in trying to create something that didn't exist anywhere else, especially around the compounding space. And so they had a lot of of the different remedies. That would be compounded, whether they had active components or uh, inert components or things that were more um, nutraceutical in its approach versus actually pharmaceutical. So that's something that we spent a lot of time on. And, and the compounders are very proud of their profession, and they they definitely want to contribute and help educate uh, individuals in, in the realm of uh, different types of topicals, especially the, the products that they make that get absorbed through the capillary beds in your arms and behind the knee. Uh, in the armpits too, the maxillary glands. I mean, these are places where you can get really good absorption and bypass first pass, and you you definitely can can get exposure to these things. But as with any argument against compounding, there's not a lot of research behind it, and that's kind of the frustrating part. They don't go through the 13, 14 years of development to create the formulas that they make in these compound spaces, and so some people argue with that. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm very much into the customization of medicine. Now you can see big pharma doing it. It's really funny. It's just that they're doing it with much different types of, of molecules. But ultimately, this customization um, by patient is really basically the future where you can go to a, a, a building with a machine and say what you have, and it can produce a, a product that's going to mimic or, or it's going to uh, deliver what it is you need um, in order to get better, whatever your condition may be. Yeah. And I think Marixa... I'm thinking about the MTM, the the one that went into MTM. It's the same company, right? Or is, are we thinking? So about uh, yeah, so I misspoke. I'm sorry. Marixa is the MTM company. If you spell Marixa backwards, it's Xerum. 
And that is the uh, the content uh, delivery web 2.0 business that basically is behind the scenes in developing all the software and the hardware. Well, mostly the software that's used to, to basically help MTM uh, work uh, electronically and then also all the other content that they put on the web. So NACDS, NCPA kind of did a, a collaborative agreement and basically they they used Marixa um, as kind of the, the front uh, facing and then Axerum was the back facing uh, business and that's where I was a part of. Yeah, it's nice. pretty cool. Yeah, because I think they had just gotten acquired by Cardinal, I want to say. I think Cardinal yeah. got both outcomes and Marixa for the uh, for the MTM portion of things. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure I haven't been a part of that group in a long time, but uh, you know, it was uh, it was definitely uh, the kind of stuff you would do in Austin, Texas, man. That's the kind of stuff. I I basically tried every way I could to not be a traditional pharmacist. That was the mission in my life yeah. was to leverage the profession, but not practice a general practice type of environment. That was my goal in my career. I don't know why. I still like going to practice every once in a while, counseling patients. You know, my number one priority when I go to the pharmacy in a practice setting is to make sure they don't take any OTC meds. I'm trying to talk them out of <laughs> taking funny. anything to try to really determine what their, their core problem is. And it's actually, I feel successful if I can convince them that they don't need anything. They just need rest or they need a compress or they need something that doesn't necessarily involve a, a pharmaceutical to be put into their body. Um, and I'm sure you may have experience with this, but most pharmacists don't like taking any drugs. Well, I'm sure there's some that do love taking them, but I sure don't. Yeah. And, and, I, <laughs> and we catch our patients off guard a lot too, when, which I think is great. You know, you talk about like deprescribing and you get into that aspect. I mean, I loved how confused my patients used to be when I tell them <laughs> that they don't need something, you know, and yeah. when, when they was prescribed for them. Um, but, you know, just giving off some basic counseling and, and lack of education as to what might be going on. There's times I've told patients like, you might actually not need this. And it turns yep. out, you know, I was right. And, um, and the patient didn't take a medication they didn't need to. Um, yeah. So, so it's, inter yeah, it's interesting. Facilitating discussion with your patient is probably the number one priority when you're in pharmacy practice and it just doesn't happen anymore today. I don't see it enough at least. So what do you, what advice do you have for a pharmacist that wanted to get into uh, clinical trials as a whole? Maybe not specifically, you know, sure. exactly what you're doing, but maybe someone's like, th they just listened to that conversation and they're like, wow, this is what I want to do. Um, and try to maybe give two different viewpoints of, um, of advice where one is a student, um, where they're maybe in their, or they're going into their third year or even their fourth year. Um, and then maybe one is a practicing pharmacist, maybe like how you were and, and is deciding to make the or want, hoping to make a jump. Well, in the role that I'm in now, or even the people that report into me, it's very competitive, as you could imagine. There's not a lot of spots available. When I started with my, you know, it was a 16,000 person company. There were literally three pharmacists and I was the third pharmacist in the group. Now my group is 14 pharmacists strong and, and that's 10 years later, eight years later. So you can imagine how tough it is for a pharmacist to get into an actual pharmacy practice environment where we're compounding or manufacturing uh, and doing that type of work. As a student, you can believe this, I actually host students all the time. I am on number 39 since I've been at, at my company now, and they love it. They love the exposure to something because I'm in Texas. So Texas doesn't have a lot of industry, uh, so we don't get any of it. I mean, there's like two companies in the whole state that have real strong presence. And one of them's in, in Fort Worth, actually, which is real close to where I am in Dallas. And the other ones are in San Antonio. And they most, mostly do nutraceutical products or they do um, uh, some kind of like prenatal vitamins. Uh, Mission Farm, I think, is the name of the company. 
Uh, anyways, so a student getting exposure to clinical research in a CRO environment is is kind of easy to do if you're if you're able to be flexible with your rotations. It's an, an elective rotation. I definitely offer it in Wisconsin and Florida as well as in Texas. And ultimately, the the goal is to get the student exposed to the role of a pharmacist in that particular environment. So. Um, the other piece I would always advise to is that most every pharmacy school, most, I mean, it's definitely not all, has a research division. And in that division, there are people that interact with sponsors. And those are the professors that you want to interact with to see if, as a pharmacist, you want to be more into the research side of things, whether it's formulation uh, or maybe perhaps you want to do the clinical research side of thing. And that would usually inquire with your um, health outcomes division within the graduate schools of your colleges of pharmacy, perhaps professors that are doing publication in different types of medicines, whether it's uh, post-marketing surveillance type of work or whether it's a perspective type of clinical research, which is pretty rare, actually, because um, basically in, in the bench science in academia, you're focused on getting into the human, right? So it's kind of the preclinical state, but you're focused on formulation. And then the last thing you do is clinical research at the phase four level, which is where the drug's already on the market and you're kind of evaluating it. So there's a big gap in pharmacy schools in the phase two, three area that you don't really get a lot of exposure to, but definitely phase one is 100% in the biopharmaceutics divisions and all the divisions within the colleges of pharmacy that really focus on new molecular entities that they're trying to determine, do these have any pharmacological effect that are going to benefit uh, patients in the long run? So student definitely has to focus on trying to find a rotation that involves research and then also try to reach out and connect with professors that, um, you know, that are that are willing to take on students as a kind of as a volunteer or a, an intern, if you will, probably unpaid in some situations, but paid in others. Um, and it really depends on on speaking, uh, sparking your interest, right? And it just takes the right person to find the right opportunity as a as a student. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to be a little stubborn here and say, all right, what if tomorrow, I'm me like Richard, I decide I want to be in a role similar to yours, and yep. you say now that you have 14, you know, pharmacists in your current company after over 10 years, but I don't know, maybe you know, over the next five years, you're going to expand to 10 more. I want a yep. shot at being one of those pharmacists. What path or what would I do in your, what would I do so, to try to get there and be competitive? So com- competitiveness for me now, for my new hires is really driven around experience in, if you can believe this in sterile compounding. <laughs> so, um, someone who understands the nuances of sterile compounding when it comes to management of a facility, the equipment you use, and then even to the point at which you understand compounding from a formulation perspective. So you kind of know how to work in a clean room with raw materials. It's uh, beneficial if you have that exposure because that means you're willing to fail. It also means you're willing to try new things, something that a traditional pharmacist doesn't typically want to do. Um, you need to be prepared for that. You need to be prepared for constant change. You're going to walk in every day into my office and you're working on something new every single day. If you think the same thing is going to happen every day you walk in, we are in exactly the wrong place. So you need to be willing to change constantly. I love those arguments that we see on Twitter and on Reddit where people are frustrated that they don't get what they need to get and they want a union in their farm. That's ridiculous. It's not about how the company helps you. It's about making sure that you can contribute to the organization uh, and find new ways to get to end games faster or to figure out novel ideas for your sponsors to help you get through, or your patients to be able to get through their conditions. It's all the same thing. It's just, it's how you think about it. 
And so as, a, as someone who's trying to get into the, the clinical research side of things, that's one aspect, at least definitely in the, of the five new hires that I'm bringing in, they need to come in with some experience with their hands and understanding a little bit more of what it means to be a, basically a hardcore compounder, being able to do sterile fill and to be able to work in that space. That's going to give you a huge advantage over other candidates that don't have that. The other advantage is, well, it's not an advantage, but the other thing to think about is other areas in clinical research. So I, I just had a student graduate uh, last May. And she got a job at a pharmaceutical company that's a startup here in Dallas, actually, of all places. It's oncology-focused, so it's a little different than what I deal with. But she's already wearing floor hats. And you know why she's wearing floor hats? It's because she's a pharmacist. Pharmacists are capable of handling multiple things at the same time, meaning that they can be put into a role and be effective in that role, whether it's writing, whether it's communication, whether it's uh, a measure of trying to determine the best approach to help sites be ready uh, to start a study, so they call it site qualification. Pharmacists are excellent project managers, typically, especially the ones that have had the practice in, in general practice settings. They're basically managing processes and projects on a regular basis, focused on workflow. So ultimately, I think a pharmacist is, is typically selling themselves pretty short when they want to focus in retail and community uh, or in hospital, institutional, because they they, they have so much more potential. And so the, the jobs that are there in clinical, uh, you know, over in, um, in hospital institutional settings, those are some of the best pharmacists, right? But that's what everybody's becoming is these clinical pharmacists. There's not enough roles available. There's not enough jobs. And so you have to find a way to take that focus and translate it into more uh, marketable skills like project management or, um, you know, efficiency modeling and consulting, things where you can have the people skills to interact with different types of disciplines, whether it's physicians, nurses, or more importantly, in, at least in the research space, and sponsors who, you know, have similar goals as you do is to try to get the best outcome possible for, for patients taking these medications. Yeah. I, you got, yeah go ahead. Uh, I want to piggyback off of kind of what you just mentioned about, you know, pharmacists um, possibly selling themselves short. I think it's really underrated the the skills that a community pharmacist has because you think about you think about the stuff that a community pharmacist that's at a busy store that is yeah. running things effectively managing a team like the amount of fires that is that are happening at any given moment and with the composure that for the most part every single one of those community pharmacists are handling that and moving on to the next and keeping things going like the I just feel like the the battle scars that that community pharmacists have actually can prepare them for like for anything and and what it reminds me of and this is just me totally going like deep into like my past is like I wrestled in high school and there was a a really famous wrestler um, named Dan Gable and if there's a wrestler listening to this there I think their ears are gonna really pop up but it's a very small community of us but anyway there's a guy named Dan Gable, and he has a very famous quote that says, once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. And it really starts to make me think about very similarly, like if you've been a community pharmacist, um, you know, for a set amount of time at a busy store and you were able to run that effectively, it almost, it, I think you're almost prepared to do anything. I'm not, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. And I'm going to tell you how I promote the profession within my organization is when they're asking me what kind of person is needed to do this type of role, and it's a very project-based role and a very client-facing role, I'm pushing pharmacy, pharmacy, pharmacy all the time. 
pharmacists are having a lot of trouble getting jobs that you know were promised to them, if you will, three, four, five years ago. And now they have to take a little bit of a pay cut, but they can get into opportunities where the growth potential far outweighs what you would do in retail. Beyond belief. And pharmacists just don't even know about it yet. That's the funny part, is that there are so many other avenues outside pharmacy. Yeah, go do it. Definitely get the exposure and learn what the trenches are like. It's important. I did it for, I still do it. I did 24 years in the same company. And every time I go on a weekend, it's still busy. I got one text, sometimes one and a half, and it ultimately turns into chaos and you got to put out a fire. But that skill set to manage stress, to manage phones and drive through in front and, and all, the, all the things you got to do translates to anything as long as you know how to, how to build it. The problem is pharmacists tend to shut down when you want to offer them something that doesn't involve direct patient care or direct patient interaction or the ones that don't want that. They're not using their quote-unquote profession the way that they were trained to in pharmacy school. Life is about thinking outside the box, not just following the rails, your entire you know, structure. you yeah. got to find out what you want and what interests you, and then eventually you'll get to where you want to be. I, I think the happiest pharmacists I know are the ones that were flipping houses while they're still in the pharmacy <laughs> yeah. practicing because they loved it. They just loved the idea of making a house that was dirt into something amazing and then selling it. And uh, and it was amazing how happy those folks were. I wish I had the gumption to do real estate. I really do. But uh, the bottom line is, is that some people like structure, some people like total freedom. And I think the those of us that that prefer an open path versus one that's d- driven for you. I mean, I, I know my measure, my success when I tell my boss how my promotion is going to be. <laughs> that's when I know I'm doing a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> when I tell him this is the new title and this is what the roles and responsibilities are for this new title. At this company I'm at now, I have done that every single step of the way, man. And it, it really is something that you're passionate about and it, it, it takes you to work every day. But let me tell you, man, it's rough. There's days that are hard. It's busy turnover and managing people and problems and, and, and sponsors, crazy clients that demand a lot. It's all part of the game, uh, but it's still exciting every single day. And it, it I think that's what drives me the most excited is in, in community. It's kind of a routine. You know, once you get your used to your, your, um, your patient base and you kind of see the same prescriptions over and over again. Um, you know, it becomes too routine for me and it becomes uh, very repetitive and it, it gets very disengaging when you're in a business where you're constantly seeing new challenges and new change and it's exciting. Uh, engagement is really hard to drop. And that's what my team does. They, they stay engaged because they're challenged every single time they're presented with a new project. Yeah. What, what would you say is the hardest part about your role? Um, I think, Right now, it's the work-life balance is by far the hardest part. Um, I love my job so much that I definitely take time away from my family that I probably shouldn't, um, but I really love what I do. I, I definitely have days where I wish I wouldn't do as much as I have. Um, I think the other tough part is to – it's not tough, actually. It's just it's so much fun, but I think a lot of people would find it challenging. It's convincing sponsors that they should leverage our service instead of going the traditional route and making their drug. I love it. I love sitting with a client who says, I know more than you. You can't do what a CMC, CMO or you know, contract manufacturing uh, organization can do. And then I, I walk them through what we do. Then I have their quality assurance come and, and inspect our facility. And they're like, holy crap, you guys can do the same thing at a scale that makes much more sense for phase one. And it's like the best thing ever, man. I, I, it's hard to do, though. It takes a lot of effort to prepare for those meetings, to build the confidence and um and the client to make that decision. And, and ultimately that's uh, definitely the challenge for at least from the commercial side of things. Interesting. And what would you say excites you the most about 
the future of pharmacy, whether it be like a technology, maybe some treatments, you know, that's maybe coming in the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, what, so, what excites you the most? Well, since I'm lucky enough to see some of the bleeding edge stuff, I mean, Alzheimer's and, and um, Parkinson's are absolutely in the forefront of the type of the, the type of therapeutic areas that we deal with the most, you know, oncology absolutely has made the most progress of any other therapeutic area. And it's a pretty broad area, obviously oncology. And I don't get a lot of exposure to that in the research space because we deal mainly with safety, but I get a lot of exposure to small molecules and even biologics that are hovering around the neurodegenerative disease area. And it is getting impressive every single day. I've got stories that I, I wish I could tell you that are just like they blow your mind. Mm. Um, stuff that happens in the military that nobody knows about. And, and it's just clearly night and day, uh, excuse me, differentiation uh, with regards to the disease states. They're focusing on the neurodegenerative uh, uh, disease states. I think some of the more exciting things are obviously, um, I don't want to use the word, but CBD and uh, even THC component type of things are starting to creep into our clinics. That says a lot. Uh, typically, those types of studies don't happen in shops like mine because we're, we're kind of like the Cadillac of CROs. Typically, those are done at like the mom and pop CROs that are small time because mm-hmm. there's a lot of risk involved. But uh, I've got clients now that they want us to do it and they're legit large organizations that want to do these types of trials, which are pretty exciting. Uh, to see where where we're headed there. However, as someone who cannot stand the nutraceutical field, I cannot stand seeing how many CBD places are opening up like crazy in Texas. I mean, it's like one every freaking day all over the place. And it's it's getting really ab- absurd as to what they're putting on the signs about the CBD and what it can do uh, when there's really not a lot of evidence enough enough yet to show what's, what truly you know needs to happen, how it needs to be dosed, how it needs to be prepared, et cetera. So you know, there's a lot of a lot of therapeutic areas I think that are really un, untouched uh, to the level where we want them to be. And Parkinson's and Alzheimer's definitely tops that list for me. Man, it sounds like you got some real high security clearance, which is <laughs> which I'm super envious of. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, you know, you got to sign confidentiality everywhere. But the bottom line is, is that um, you know the goal in the end is to try to make products that uh, well to help sponsors make products that are going to help them get to market and and help people out. And uh, I would say over the you know last 12 years, I, literally, Dan, six products maybe I've touched that I've seen gone to market. That's about it. It's not a lot. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, actually. man. Crazy so think, of, think, yeah, think about how many drugs have died before it got to market. Now, there's a lot of studies that we do where the drug is already in phase three, about to go to market. And all we're doing is the labeling study. So those drug-drug interaction studies I was mentioned to you earlier. Some people don't invest in those studies early because what's the point? If the drug isn't going to make the market, why do I need a DDI study? But you do these DDI studies when the drug is literally about to be sent off for its NDA to the agency. And ultimately, this is when you get involved. So I do a lot of those, and that's kind of cheating in my opinion. It's not really the innovator part. Mm-hmm. It's more of the – this is the, the to put the ribbon around the package that they're going to ship to the FDA to make sure the drug is ready for market. It's cool, but it's not the same as the five or six drugs we've done uh, from you know from phase one. And then you know six years later, you see it on the market. Seven years later, you see it on the market. Yeah. Oh, man. It's crazy, though. Crazy cool. <laughs> All right, try to try to reel this in, wrap this up here. Got a, a random question for you. If you had to take one person out to dinner, that person has to be alive and they have to be famous, which means alive I should be able to famous. find them on Wikipedia. Who would that person be and why? And it cannot be uh, any of the previous presidents because that's been said the most, or it can't be Jeff Bezos. That's also been said a lot. I don't care. It's Tiger Woods, man. That's pretty easy. Tiger Woods. So, okay, why? Yeah, so, so I'm a huge golfer. Tiger is exactly one week uh, younger than I am. And I've been following him since I was a kid in high school. And my uh, I was on the second team, never on the first team. And my first team colleagues in high school got to play against him in the junior amateurs and all these other things. I was never good enough to be at that level. Um, I think 
you know, I was so crushed when he went through his, his life changing experience uh, and what happened to him and to see him win the masters was the most amazing thing I've seen in a really long time. And uh, I, I followed every single championship win, every single major win. And uh, to sit down with him, even though I know he's probably not, a, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying this, he's not that intelligent of an individual in my understanding. <laughs> um, so I would like to shoot the breeze with Tiger to talk about how he was so good at something, better than anyone else for such a long time, and with all the money and all the endorsements, and then have it all taken away, and then have to build back up to get to the point where he's able to win another major um, you know, I want to hear what it's like, man. I, I'll never forget in this latest round before the Masters, it was another tournament where some guy was wearing his uh, his shirt, his T-shirt that had his mug shot when he got arrested in, in Florida uh, for, you know, for, um, I don't know, whatever the hell he got arrested for. But he looked at that guy's shirt and he laughed. And the guy was like, I saw you look at my shirt. You know, it's all on night, <laughs> yeah. live, live television. That's and funny. you saw him giggle about it because he could laugh about it, man. Yeah. That's someone who's been in the dungeons, in the in the sewer and was able to come out of it. And that is impressive. It's, it's inspirational for me to be able to know someone that has been able to to go through that kind of roller coaster. And it's not like I've, I've, I'm in the dungeons where he is. OK, I have a very good life. I have a very great family, amazing wife, amazing children. And and it's uh it's been an awesome ride, but um for some reason I'd love to hear his thoughts on on what that's like and just his experiences. Yeah, I mean it's not it's all selfish. It has nothing to do with um it being inspired by someone who uh who's made something amazing. Like if you would have said dead, I would have told you Steve Jobs. I mean there's yeah. no doubt in my mind I would have told you that. I have no interest in meeting Jeff Bezos. I would rather meet elon musk for five minutes before i met uh just Be jeff bezos for yeah. the rest of my life so the the reality is is that tiger is to me is someone who everybody wrote off and uh and i didn't i was always eager to see when he was going to come back and i was so happy to see that very inspirational for me personally yeah well that's awesome i mean i would definitely like to go uh, have a seat with elon musk as well by the way uh he seems like an <laughs> yes extremely... i know your love for tesla your love for tesla is very obvious on yeah. twitter I freaking love Tesla. Oh my God. It's going to be the future. Like, I mean, we're all, and you know, what sucks, you know, what really sucks. And this is just going really off topic, but I'm just, you know, I, I just so sad to see in the news people dying or getting severely injured from car accidents. And it's terrible because, um, just as how people back in the day used to die because we didn't have seatbelts, seatbelts, you know, yeah. and, and just the amount of people that died just because we didn't have seatbelts and now we have seatbelts and people are, you know, less people are dying. But just to think about the jump that we're going to make when when cars are as smart as a Tesla, the amount yeah. of lives that are going to be saved, there still be accidents. Obviously, it's not going to be an, a perfect car, but the amount of lives that are going to be saved from stupid accidents, it's going to be ridiculous. So um, I do hope every I hope one day it'll be extremely affordable. And if not, I hope everyone gets fortunate enough to be able to buy one. But um, yeah, just because no the roads will be. Um, and whether it be that car particularly, I'm more so fascinated with the technology and I don't think any car can, can compare to it, but I don't, there's nothing, um, you know, where I would be super passionate about the brand if another car comes along and it's a better, like I, it's a better car. I just, I want the technology to be there where when people are driving on the road, it's a safe thing to do. I don't want to drive anymore, man. I want autonomous stuff. I'm, yeah, I'm tired sure. of driving. No, it's I don't want to illegal. drive anymore. It's going to be illegal one day driving yeah. individuals driving, mark my words right now, like I'm going on record. That I don't know when it's going to be, if it's going to be in 15 years or 50 <laughs> years, but there's going to be a time just like that movie, just like iRobot, how, yep. you know, they got crazy when Will Smith took over. 
Yeah. It's going to be like that. It's going to be, or, or you'll be like held more held liable for an accident. If the car was being driven by him. Emmanuel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like it's, it's, um, interesting times, but, uh, anyway, <laughs> tell the listeners how, if they wanted to connect back with you, what's the best way to do that? So I'm on Twitter for sure. That's where I hover the most. I'm a, a ghoster, whatever they call us. I tweet a little bit, but I'm more of a responder. So you post something unique and you'll see my name. I'm under Stavmar. Same name across all platforms. So definitely Facebook and um, uh, yeah, Instagram. I don't do Snapchat. I don't think I'm ever going to either. I think it's kind of weird. But the <laughs> bottom line is, is I do have an account with them. So if you reach me that way, so be it. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I do like Reddit. I do follow a lot of that stuff. Uh, I'm a heavy podcast listener. I tried listening to yours, Richard, quite a few times. And it's hard to get through the whole thing. So we need to add some music or do something <laughs> to make it more exciting. <laughs> Um, but the bottom line is, you know, where I listened to you first, though, was on Alexa, man, through your um, Alexa app. And it was really nice to to listen to it occasionally. But honestly, I use it to fall asleep. So that tells you something. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, the, I appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate the plugs, man. <laughs> RX Radio, man. It's, yeah. way to, it's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to get back on the flash briefing. Um, uh, I've been have, have these ideas of like all these different new series that I want to do and um, time is just not on my side sometimes, but hopefully I'll, I'll get back to that. But, um, Marcus, this conversation was extremely fascinating and I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, wow. How interesting was that? I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope you did too. If you're following Arx Radio on any social media platform, you've likely seen the uh, Oh My God Pharmacy series that I'm going to be starting here soon. And basically what I'm going to be doing is collecting stories from uh, from pharmacists or, or pharmacy technicians out in, out in the field, um, out in community pharmacy, hospital pharmacy, any practice setting. I want to hear your crazy or funny pharmacy stories. And I'm going to basically have episodes Uh, that's going to read through those stories and have some commentary behind them. So if you want to submit a story, just post your story anywhere on social media and use the hashtag OMG pharmacy, or you can send an email to OMG at rxradio.fm. That's OMG at rxradio.fm. And if you submit the story, or you can send me a DM um, on any one of those social media platforms with your story. And I will um, and potentially add it to the episode. So, um, again, any crazy, funny stories, please submit it. It's, I think it's going to be a really, really fun episode to go through. And um, if you're not already, follow on any of your favorite social media platforms. Uh, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. And as always, appreciate you tuning in and hope you have a great rest of your day. Pharmacy.